Hi, welcome to the Art and Science of Learning, the podcast that digs deeper in how we learn, so that in today's accelerated world, we can learn better and enjoy it more. I'm your host, learning specialist, Dr. Kinga Petrovai. Every week, I discuss aspects of learning with academics, practitioners, and individuals with unique learning journeys to inform and inspire how you design learning into work and life. The debate on whether to go back to the office or work from home is getting stronger and louder in recent years. It is a global conversation with many voices that is not necessarily getting clearer. We are reimagining and reframing what office work looks like. And although a lot of work does not happen in the office, this is a significant shift that is happening in the future of work. In this episode, I'm very pleased to be speaking to the author of the book titled The Nowhere Office, Reinventing Work and the Workplace of the Future. She is a leading thinker and voice in this debate. Her book brings together research and voices from across the field and around the globe. It is really not about not having an office, but rather is how to reform and reframe how we work. Julia Hobsbawm is an award-winning writer, speaker, consultant, and Bloomberg commentator and columnist about the future of work. She is the author of the acclaimed book, The Nowhere Office, Reinventing Work and the Workplace of the Future. She was a founder of the U.S.-led Workforce Institute, was the chair of the inaugural UK Demos Workshift Commission, and now co-hosts the popular podcast, The Nowhere Office. Julia is the author of six books, including the award-winning The Simplicity Principle, which won two awards for Best Business Book and Best General Self-Help Book in 2020 in the U.S., and Fully Connected, Social Health in the Age of the Overload, which was shortlisted for the Management Book of the Year in the U.K., Julia has been connecting people and ideas for many years. She is an acclaimed entrepreneur who founded the networks and podcast business, Editorial Intelligence. She was awarded an OBE in the late Queen Elizabeth II's birthday honors list in 2015 for services to business. She regularly consults for and speaks to corporations, government, and changemakers around the world. I'm so pleased to be talking with her about her latest book, Thank you very much, Julia, for joining me. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm absolutely thrilled to to talk about The Nowhere Office, the book that you have published, and it is just jam-packed full of interesting data, research, observations, and taking a very complex issue and and pulling it all together. I absolutely loved reading it, and I think anyone working in an office would love seeing the amazing ideas and the connections that you're making in that book. Thank you very much. It's definitely had a bit of an impact. Um, I haven't really stopped being interviewed about it since it was first published in the UK and the US a year ago. And now the UK paperback is coming out to coincide with the third anniversary of the pandemic, which really sparked the whole ideas for the book. Oh, fantastic. And of course, I have to say, there's also a really great podcast that goes along with it, also called The Nowhere Office. So you've been doing a lot of in-depth thinking and writing uh, about on this topic. But before we even get to the book, I mean, I met you years ago back in the UK when you hosted a really fantastic conference, Names Not Numbers. And really, your, your entire career I think the silver thread that goes through it is that you create connections between people and ideas and bring people together. And that actually comes through in your book as well, the importance of networks and social health. 
with it being so central in your life and career, how did you experience the pandemic when socializing and connecting was not possible? You had to find different ways of doing it. Did you find new ways of recreating that magic? I did. I mean, for those of your listeners, there's no reason why they should know anything about me. So I was known before I started writing books pretty seriously around modern connectedness and modern work and you know, books I started writing in about 2017. I was running for about 15 years a, a network, a, a private events network that did some media publishing but brought people together in real life. That was absolutely mm-hmm. the USP was IRL. And it included things like the small conference names, not numbers, where we took about 100 people, quite diverse backgrounds, very famous celebrities, corporate types, and young up-and-coming often ethnically diverse youngsters who we supported financially to get to come into the mix. And it just was great. And I wrote a lot about the power of social networks. And I was very much arguing that in a Facebook world, as was then, you needed to be face to face. Pandemic hit and a couple of things happened. One was I had a new book out at the time, not the Nowhere Office, a book called The Simplicity Principle that was literally published the week of the pandemic. So I just sort of sat pretty much where I'm sitting now for months giving interviews. But I was still running my network. And in fact, I'd just taken, the company had just taken funding from Google for our social mobility project um, called the Social Capital Network. And I thought, well, how is this going to work out? Um, and I turned to WhatsApp, which I had never been on before. And I created a series of WhatsApp groups. I did two sets of groups. One was a set of groups that were basically social, that I pulled together people that I liked and knew from my you know, pretty wide-ranging networks across politics and media and friends and nonprofit and global and said, do you want to come and hang out and sort of huddle from the storm? And we did. And those groups are still going strong. Mm -hmm. Strongest network I've ever created with those WhatsApp groups. And then I was also able to apply that model to the social capital network professional group, but to add it with an overlay of Zoom. And I began to win quite a lot of business, convening effectively focus groups and discussions on Zoom that then also carried on on WhatsApp. So the the answer to your question is, I tried out the new technology and I found that it worked. And what's interesting to me now, looking at the post-pandemic world, is that we are not going back to purely in real life. And of Mm -hmm. course, this is vexing a number of people who wished we could, but the genie is not going back. And it's about finding the the best of both worlds, isn't it? And I think that's what comes across in your book as well, is finding the best of in-person and online and bringing it together into a better context, better environment, better ways to, of connecting and working. I think it is. And I mean, certainly one of the things that I really feel more and more is that there is no one size fits all. Mm-hmm. You know, the the business world, which I comment on and consult for, is very much what's the model? You know, it comes from an MBA culture. What's the six-point plan, the five-point plan, and how do we plan for five years, and how do we make it stick? And actually what the pandemic has told us is there is no one-size-fits-all. There is just a set of trends coming together, making people think differently and create new shapes in new timeframes. And that is... 
stressful, difficult, hybrid is hard, but it's also, I think, pretty healthy, actually, in the long run. So, yeah, new models, new times. It's definitely something to we need to reflect on and to redesign and to do it very deliberately and consciously. As you wrote, there's so many different aspects that are important to be taken into consideration. And sometimes I wonder if it's a little bit pessimistic of a thought, but you know, we've had two years of thinking about it. And yet right now it feels like what the conversation almost has just begun. It's so chaotic. It's so uh, loud. Reading your book, I was like, oh, it's a voice in the chaos of there's some order. There's ideas we can pull from wonderful academics and people who have been working and thinking about this for a very long time to break through the confusion and the chaos that I feel like we're going through as a world. Thank you. And we've just experienced actually an example of the the moment that we're in, which is the phone is going and the dog is barking. Oh, dear. The going and the dog is barking. So whether you'll edit this out or not, or whether you will use it as an example of what I call the nowhere off um, is, 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 is up to you. I mean, it's very kind of you to say that what I think you're saying, which is that I give voice to some of the trends that have been emerging. So I am a bit of an observer of the culture. And I observed for a long time, pre-pandemic, that the world of work didn't really work. Right. But it fell on deaf ears because the narrative was offices are great, businesses are great, growth is great, conferences are great, technology is great, co-working spaces are great, everything is great. And yet, in my interest around physical health, mental health, and what I call social health, connected health, around how we connect with each other, it was quite clear that we were experiencing burnout, tune out, productivity was stagnant, and so on and so forth. And so for me, the the pandemic was an opportunity to say, actually, the the dam has burst. A lot of feelings that were, were walled up with people telling themselves that there was only one way to work, i.e. to commute into a city center, Mm -hmm. to work Mm -hmm. long hours, to talk about mental well-being as if it was somehow divorced from the way you were managed, as if it was somehow separate from how you were paid or what your job was. You know, well-being was held as a little sort of bubbly balloon. You know, let's all do mindfulness. Let's all jump on beanbags. Let's all play ping pong and we will feel great. And I always thought, hang on a minute, actually no we need you know to get real which is work is central essential not many of us can afford not to do it i personally believe that most of us would like to do it whether Mm -hmm. we're white collar Mm -hmm. or blue collar i don't subscribe to the view that some do that you know it would be great if we didn't have to work i do subscribe to the view that having work life balance time is absolutely crucial But I felt this is a moment to say, why doesn't work work well? Not, oh, work works well, we're not well. You know, we suffer from mental health. I wanted to kind of connect the reality that it is the workplace and work itself that was needing to fix itself. And that if you did that, you might get better retention, better productivity, better engagement. So I'm a sort of critical optimist. Mm -hmm. I've often described myself as an optimistic pessimist because obviously there's a lot to find problems with, but actually now I'm almost reframing it as I'm a critical optimist. I do believe things can improve, change, but we have to get a little bit hard-edged about how we do that. 
completely, I completely agree with you. And as you said, often we think that because work is not working well, we're better off. Actually, we would be happier without work. But it's only those who have found themselves without work and lost, even if they don't need to, that you realize you actually really need purpose and work and root kind of structure. I don't see much evidence that humans are basically meant to be idle. I don't see in the history of civilization much evidence for that. And I take quite a lot of comfort from Hannah Arendt's, you know, Vita Activa philosophy that society is fundamentally made up of people who have a purpose to create and to work. Of course, as well, we need an inner, mindful, peaceful way of being as well. And so one of the things I try and do in my work, in my writing, in my thinking, and my communicating of these ideas is to say it's really all about the balance, understanding who we are as individual humans and collective humans we're trying to do against, if you like, the bricks and mortar, actually and metaphorically, of where we live and how we live and work. And of course, technology, the overlay and the interface has made a lot more possibility and a lot more problems. And so this is an endlessly changing and evolving landscape and it's complicated and only the the most far-sighted leaders and managers, the people that ultimately give us the work, right, that hire us, um, whether we're freelancers and solopreneurs, Mm -hmm. as I call it, or whether we're part-time, full-time, employed, salaried, whatever, You need to have a certain kind of enlightened mindset for these new times. And that's what really interests me. Um, The reality is the Nowhere Office is, I hope, a catchy title that conveys the fact that we are in the middle of nowhere in relation to how work used to work and is going to work. And actually, I don't just mean the world of the white collar work, although Mm -hmm. the office is, of course, seen as where the privileged, uh, educated, those with a choice work. But Quite a lot of businesses and organizations rely on workers who have to be in the field, on the floor, mm-hmm. on the shop floor and the back office. And so pretty much every organization needs an office. Let's just say for the sake of argument, I'm talking only about the office and desk based and knowledge based worker. What I'm saying is that for various reasons that stretch back historically, which I lay out in the book, the moment of the pandemic uncorked, unleashed, took the genie out of the bottle, all of these metaphors in which all sorts of latent desires and dissatisfactions about the way world was working came to the fore, i.e. flexible working, i.e. not commuting, i.e. not being given work that people didn't feel was fair or had a purpose. And you saw it in the great resignation, you see it in people leaving their jobs, not coming back, you see it in quiet quitting, the, you know, the I mean, all of these are buzzwords, they don't necessarily mean the whole picture, but the quiet quitting, people being effectively non-compliant, you see it in the pushback of people who have resisted coming back to the offices, never in the history of corporate culture has there been so much rejection of the bosses. I mean, you know, Goldman Sachs's boss has been left flailing. Apple's boss has been left flailing. There really isn't a mainstream tech or financial house that hasn't experienced problems. And so these feelings of workers, that they do not want to be caged in an office, in a structure and a system of a five-day week and a commute, 
is really what I call the nowhere office, but it's not no office. It's not advocating, yes. oh, let's all be fully yeah. at all, at all, at all. About reforming and reframing how we work in the place that we work and how we readdress the need for culture and cohesion and community. As I said to you earlier, those do include in real life, face-to-face -face and digital answers. Absolutely. And it does come through very clearly, although the headline says nowhere office. It's really more accurately a redesigning of office work because there's so many different aspects of it. So it's not about not having the real estate or the space, but it's really redesigning. How do we do the type of work that has been happening in an office? Am I understanding that correctly? Yes. I mean, I'm even more ambitious than that, actually. I want to look at the way work works and why it doesn't work. And so in the book, I look both at issues of time and place. Mm -hmm. You know, the reality is that how we handle when we work is particularly critical, given that we, we have smartphone devices. So the whole question about boundaries and when do you switch off and can you ever disconnect and all of that. The question about location, you know, it's absolutely not the case that people who can work from home necessarily do so with equality. Mm -hmm. uh, we know that people with children or people who share flats or people who are in cold, unheated spaces or people who, uh, you know, don't have a spare room in which in which they work comfortably all are disadvantaged. So there's a lot of complexity. So I devote a chapter to time. I devote a chapter to place. I devote a chapter, as you say, to the question of networks and how we create community. But I also look at this question of well-being which I think has not got off to the wrong start, but is an unfinished story. I also yes. devote a chapter to leadership and management. And with that, a chapter on what I rather unkindly call human remains, which is the slang behind its back for human resources. So my perspective is I'm really interested in the whole picture. I'm interested as well. I devote a chapter to working identity and I don't actually mean what a lot of people mean in this day and age which is sort of pronouns and preferences I actually mean the life stage that you're in as a worker because now you've got basically some form of hybrid here to stay as the norm and that's a generalization but it is in fact at the moment true all thoughts that people wanted and that people are being provided so if we discount the jobs that some people absolutely have to be fully present for. And if we discount certain industries like financial services, where they're buying you in and saying you've got to be fully present, pretty much everybody else is choosing to be hybrid and pretty much everybody else is choosing to try and be flexible. Some of them are just going for the easy option, which is a four day week, which I don't necessarily think is completely the answer. We can discuss that, but in any shape or form, hybrid is here. And therefore, what you actually need is a workable way of meeting the needs of different kinds of workers at their stage in life. What I mean by this, if you are what I call a learner, i.e. basically between 18 and 23, you could be an apprentice, you could be a graduate, you could be a postgraduate, you're coming into the workplace for the first time. You really do need an office or an environment, a home a casing, a place of certainty and predictability and pattern become more often 
however briefly, like, you know, a baby is in their mummy's tummy for nine months. Maybe you come into the office that you join for nine weeks immersion or nine months. I mean, we need to be creative about solutions for the times that you are in your life when you're working. And if you're beginning your career, you probably need to be in an office or a shared, almost like university of work. That's right. Differently from the group I call the leavers. Now the leavers are older. They've got children or they've got aging parents or they've got portfolio careers because the majority of us are going to be working freelance more and more. So the idea of a single siloed job is dwindling. So what that means is that we need to be in and out for our own mental health and community. I write a column for Bloomberg. I go into Bloomberg in London about once every 10 days just to hang out at the water cooler and say hi to people. I don't write my column. From There's Bloomberg. so much value in that, isn't Absolutely. there? Absolutely. There's so much value in those unplanned Serendipity. Serendipity, yes, that's right. I'm a lever demographically. Mm -hmm. I'm older, I'm 58 years old. I don't need or want to be in an office all the time because it bugs me, the time to get there, the lack of privacy, et cetera, et cetera. So really what I want to your point about redesigning work is I want us to redesign against the life stages of people doing the work, as well as thinking about space and the office space. I think at the moment, the first three years, and again, you raise a very good point that we're really only just getting started. I think the first three years were first about a sort of fantasy that Mm. this isn't really happening, it's just an interruption and a realization, no, it's real, these shifts are happening. The second was the idea that, oh, well, let's all go fully hybrid. Everybody's going hybrid. Everybody can make their own Mm -hmm. schedule. Well, that hasn't worked. That's created a lot of problems. Now we're entering a more sophisticated, customized stage. But in terms of offices themselves, the trend is still, if we make the office gorgeous, people will want to come back. And now there's a realization, not quite. How do they how do they look gorgeous? What does that mean? And it still doesn't address this life stage point. So it's really complicated. It is. But and I like that life stages, the the learner, the lever, and then the leader. Can you elaborate a little bit about what the leader needs? Yes, although funnily enough, I wrote the book and I said that the three life stages were the learner and the lever and the leader. The manager was sort of like the boundary spanner. And I actually have amended that. now in my thinking which is i call them the in-betweener okay because really a leader can be a learner or a leader you know some people are really highly qualified and get a leadership position immediately an in-betweener is that boundary spanner of the solopreneur the person that's got to flit between you know the two different states or somebody that might come into an office and work immersively on a project internationally Uh, They may be seconded Mm -hmm. and go in situ or do a maternity cover or that kind of thing. So, yes, the life stages, the three L's of the learner, the lever and the leader or L-L-I, learner, lever, tweener. Yes, I like that. I think it's very important. It's not something I've really heard about in the conversation overall, because we do need to look at not just individually what everyone wants, 
also the type of work they're doing, also what they need at a specific life stage, and also what we need as a group together when we come together. And I remember uh, on one of your podcasts, I heard someone say uh, that the workplace is now going to become more of what club is or or a university is, where people come together for specific purposes in specific areas uh, to do certain types of work, and they're being offered collegiality, maybe uh, a nice lunch, but it's not all the time. You don't come there all the time. You come there for a purpose. And I think that's what has been really missing right now when people say, come whenever you like, is they find, well, it's not really nice to be on Zoom in the office. Why am I here? So how do you see that shaping? Well, a couple of things. One is the reality is that now that the technology has really entered the room, Zoom was, of course, 10 years old when the pandemic hit, like anything, whether it's classical music or art or literature or technology, sometimes it's around and not noticed, and then it flares into life and ubiquity. I actually interviewed for my podcast, Greg Toome, the president of Zoom, the other day, and he told me 70% of their people, 8,500 people around the world, don't even live near offices. So the truth is, if you want a globalized world and globalized opportunities, then you're going to have the reality that, and and it happened anyway, pre-pandemic, again, it wasn't quite noticed, is that not everyone's in the room. So one of the changes, I think, is that you are going to see in those companies that can afford it effectively much more sophisticated use of technology. You know, those old meeting rooms where you have that funny little object in the middle of the table that was people's voice you know I think we're going to go up a gear now maybe not everyone can afford floor to ceiling glass screens but I think most offices are going to aspire to having a very functional way of people being around a space a table and present in other ways whether those ways are metaverse ways remains to be seen I actually am cynical and skeptical about that because I think that's an additional boundary to go through they haven't mended the headsets properly so that you know women guess what guys design the headsets guess what women get dizzy hello we've been here before you know (laughs) but be that as it may I think multi-dimensional participation in office spaces is here to stay well I think multi-dimensional participation in office life is here to stay but as you asked the point about coming into and being in an office space. What's certainly been not working is the idea that a consensus is reached individually or collectively about certain days of the week, two, three, four days. And then people find, you know, this awful but accurate phrase, morgue offices. You know, you Mm. come in and nobody's really in, right? Mm. So that's a bit of a problem. I believe that we need to redesign the office attendance around three principles. You come to be social. You come to have not just office birthday parties, but like this is the anniversary of the thing we launched X or the annual report, or this is a moment that we need to gather around and meet each other, hang out, talk at the water cooler, be social food is completely central it's almost like not the office party it's the office lunch that will become primary so the first thing is to be social for its own sake and by the way research showed from Steelcase, the large outfitter of offices that pre-pandemic some extraordinary amount of time 
was, you know, something like 40% of time was wasted anyway in the office because people only hung out at the water cooler. So valuable wasted time being social, just picking up stuff that you can't find an obvious utility for is the thing. Second thing I think is learning, which is multi-generational and the whole skills piece is absolutely live. My goodness, we, you know, every single organizational lead knows. So you you come in to learn. And the third thing, which when I've been saying this has really landed with people, slightly to my surprise, actually, it just felt obvious to me is that you, you really need to come in to disagree and to argue and to have conflict. You can actually agree and listen and learn online but to actually look at somebody with people around and go I just need to push back on that I don't think that deadline is right or I think we've got this wrong or I don't feel my remuneration is fine and I don't want a 360 degree appraisal thank you very much I just want to tell you that I don't think you're seeing me you know this is the stuff that we need to come into a place for and that's not a coffee shop that's a place that has got anchorage. So I think there's plenty of use for offices, but to be used in a different way, all of which is a major corporate financial and political headache for people buying and renting and fitting out office space and city centres. It raises a lot of very complex issues, but that aspect that you said you need to have that eye to eye, you need to be in the room to be able to have those not just difficult conversations, but as you said, productivity and learning are notoriously difficult things to measure. And because so much of it, as you said, happens, for example, in the water cooler conversation, you learn so much, gain a lot of ideas. And I think it was in your book where you said that, can't remember what study it was that said, some of the most successful companies are the ones that have long lunches, right. because it is so important to come together over a meal, over uh, this social context and build ideas and build relationships, which eventually do lead to productivity and a lot of learning. Um, so it's redesigning that space. But I really liked this quote, uh, which touches on, on this topic, where you said, when you have a fixed beginning, middle and an end to your day, when the boundary wall between office maybe the den or the kitchen counter, you need skills, willpower, and privacy, all of which needs to be negotiated, not just with an employer, but with yourself, your family, and your coworkers. I absolutely loved that because this is an aspect that people say, oh, I, I can work productively at home or in a coffee shop, but there's so much more within ourselves that we need to learn about how we function individually, how we work, what are our circumstances so that we can make it a productive and and I don't think there's been enough conversation about us looking internally and being given the knowledge and skills to look internally and understand ourselves and what actually worked best for us. I totally agree with you and thank you for picking up that quote. I'm obsessed really with logistics, with engineering, with design and with space that shows how do humans do their best work and bring their best selves to the work, wherever that work needs to be. For instance, I wrote in my book about the Normandy landings, the D-Day landings, one of the most um, important moments in the last hundred years of history, which marked the beginning of the end of the Second World War. And of course, it's famous for 
the military and naval accomplishments. But actually behind that endeavor, British, Canadian, American, was literally a pop-up office built on the sand. And I didn't really focus on this until during lockdown, I was leafing through a book that my husband, who's an antiquarian bookseller, had on the table, which is a beautiful, rare, cloth-bound book detailing the machines, the paperwork, the supplies, the intricacy, the bureaucracy. And I thought, that is a nowhere office. It was a shared endeavor. It was purpose. They were coming together in a physical space, but it wasn't a physical space that bore any resemblance to the physical spaces they'd had before. And they were on a mission and they pulled it together, the back office, the front line, and they made it happen. And I thought there was something really beautiful and compelling about it. There was also some wonderful dry language uh, as befits the British civil service. Um, and there was a wonderful line that I quoted in the book that says the number of typewriters lost was surprisingly small. And you could just, <laughs> the point I'm making is that we need to lift the lid on everything we've told ourselves must be in place. And we need to ask ourselves instead, what works? And what works is things like, okay, this unit's task is engineering. You know, I had a tour of Google's new headquarters in London. Very interesting. It's not going to open until 2024. Inevitably, they are designing, like any technology company, different areas for head-down engineering work, because engineers need quiet space, where they can then leave that space and go to the canteen and be sustained with those people that want to flit in and out and hang out and do the stuff I've talked about, which is to be social. And therefore it makes sense for every manager, every leader, every worker to take a reality check. What is my, what is my work? Do I need a computer? Do I need uh, colleagues? Do I, what do I need? And the answer is if you really can do most of what you do on a laptop, from home, then keep that away from the office and come into the office to do what you need to do. Now, some people need to be on machines next to others to talk and collaborate, but not all. So I think we just need to be really realistic about why we're using offices, because then when we're in them, we can do so much better work. Mm, absolutely. I think that's so cr crucial to really step back and look at what is the purpose? What is the ultimate goal? And this I come across constantly in. But also actually just to, I mean, what is the purpose, but also what is the practicality? Yes. The reality is, as I say, here's an example. I go into Bloomberg. They have a very interesting setup in Bloomberg, which is when you go in, whether you're a visitor or an employee, the first floor you go to is the same for everybody. It's in the UK, it's the sixth floor. I can't remember what it is in New York and in the other offices around the world. And it's called the pantry. Mm -hmm. And it means that the first place you come to is the social space where there are drinks and snacks and big television screens and it's all rather buzzy. And the idea is that that is where you connect with your coworkers and you connect and are greeted by your host. And the expectation is that you are going to 
return to that pantry as the anchor point before you go to other floors, before you go to your meetings. And so that is one very practical idea for big enough offices is that you sort of begin effectively in the canteen. And the other very practical idea is that you design meeting spaces that can accommodate this mixed economy of people who are in the room and not in the room. But you can also then have other spaces that are quiet spaces to think or to read or to sleep or to just huddle at a desk if you if you really do need to do some head down work. But it's a mixture of tasks. It's not the same task because we're not machines. We're not working in a factory. Exactly. Well. And in the end, I think the office began to be designed a little bit more like a factory than it, than it should have been. And that's what's emerged since this nowhere office age is people are thinking, well, we're not factory workers. We're not, you know, we need a bit more variety than that. And I think uh, it's so important to remember because in this in these conversations and in the way we all think about it, it feels as if it's a given that there's an office, that it's structured and designed the way that office work is done now or has been done. But yet it's a very new concept. It's a very new concept. It's a new design. We haven't always been working in offices. So it is certainly in the progression of changing to something hopefully better, but it certainly can be a lot better in this redesign that uh, that you're discussing. But it is a very complex, multidimensional view. And you shared some points that are very important to keep in mind when people are rethinking and redesigning the way that they're working and their offices. What would you suggest being a very good first step to cut through the noise and the chaos that a lot of workplaces are experiencing where the conversation seems to stop at well some people want to come in all the time some people don't why don't you just come in two days a week or three days a week and choose whatever you like how do we cut through all of this chaos and start designing with purpose well i think it really depends who's asking the question if the question is the facilities management and the leaders redesigning, then they need to do that in conjunction with the managers dealing with the teams to look, as I say, at this pattern of what is the work that needs to be done. So it varies workplace by workplace, team by team, industry by industry. There are some similarities and some differences. And that's what some of the co- that's what some of the challenge is, isn't it? Because you can't just give a five point plan because no. there's very different people, very different types of work happening, very different. It makes it even more difficult. I think there are some principles, though. The first is that more and more the office space has got to be physically safe. And that means very unglamorous things like ventilation. An awful lot of people are being asked to come back to offices that actually are not safe. And the truth is, it's not just that COVID's going around and around. The expectation is there may be more rapidly spread infectious diseases. So we are now living with a new reality that shared spaces with other human beings carry a risk. That's not being dramatic, that's just a statement of fact. For instance, I just contributed to a book of essays on post-pandemic building. It's called Immunizing Post-Pandemic, called The Pandemic Effect with a whole lot of architects and designers. And health and safety is absolutely key. There's Mm -hmm. lots and lots of sophisticated things. So the first thing is, if you want to future-proof your office, you need to make it safe and make it visibly safe so that people know what is the air ventilation, what is the airflow, what is the disinfectant. There's a whole new iterations in paint, in 
UV in all sorts of really interesting things. So I just want to get that put on the table, that we don't talk about that. But it's offices need to feel and be safe or people ultimately will not be able to work in them through illness that's affecting lots of other people. Obviously, when people are ill, they shouldn't be working. The second point is that the design has got to be very modular and flexible. So again, back to my D-Day thing, it's got to be rather pop up and pull apart, rather like Lego. The idea that you bolt to the floor, you know, auditorium seating, no, that's not going to work. So the smart money is on designing flexibly. I would say that is the second principle. Um, And then the third thing is that I think you have to do some experiments. You have to have some space and some working patterns that are just really, really iterative, that are um, a bit like in Hollywood. They, they, They have lots of projects in development. You know, they invest in scripts and they see how they go and they spend a lot of money and investors do this all the time. You know, there has to be an investment period of time and effort to see what does work until we get through this liminal phase. Absolutely. Those are really, really important points. And in doing so, I think probably communication and and having an open communication and bringing in knowledge from external experts and sources and because these ideas as i said and it's very obvious in your book have there people have a lot of really important ideas in this that should be added to the conversation i mean the more we can share those ideas and have these conversations which is why it's so so kind of you to invite me onto the podcast you know i would urge anyone listening to think what do i feel or know that could be shared and put it on linkedin Mm-hmm. Uh, tag it the nowhere office or contact me at the nowhere office on twitter and let's get this conversation going more and more there's no there's really no wrong answer there's just a question of what are the right answers exactly fantastic and through your research and and writing the book and all the 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 podcast and the interviews that you haven't have since was there something that surprised you about this this topic is there something that really popped out in writing this book I'm constantly being surprised by how enormous this field is, how it's touching Mm -hmm. on how we live, who we are, how we go forward. And it's, of course, set against a background of a cost of living crisis, of a European war, of, you know, big changing shifts in um, what they call the global north and the global south and so on and so forth. And the social media world that we live in makes us all frightened and fretful and passionate. So I've I've been surprised by how the question of how we work and how we live has just been so central. Um, I took a bit of a gamble when I wrote this book and called it The Nowhere Office because, as I said, a lot of people said, you know, get this is just temporary, you know, of course everyone's going to go back to how they were before. And I I really felt absolutely clearly that that wasn't going to be the case and hopefully argued why. And so I've actually been surprised by how correctly I called it, actually. I really <laughs> was surprised. I thought I was taking a gamble. I'm pleased it's paid off because I, I'm a critical optimist. As I said earlier, I believe that we need to change things with a clear eye and a critical perspective. So I I want change. I think change is happening. I think change is here. But I think we need to 
do it carefully. Oh, absolutely. I completely agree. Doing it carefully, as you said, clear eye and uh, perspective. That's it's so important to really cut through the noise and bring together the the knowledge, be critical, be thoughtful and think through it with purpose. And I loved actually in your book, you use the uh, the idea of a snow globe and the chaos that we are in, in that twirling around of the snow and the snow globe. Do you see that settling? I do open the book with the idea of the snow globe. It's been around for about 100 years. It's an enduring object. Some people use it actually as a paperweight on a desk. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting about the snow globe is we almost love the fluttering flash of change. We like shaking the snow globe. Mm -hmm. So to some degree, I think the disruption will continue and we want it to continue. What I think is really interesting is what's at the base of the snow globe? Is it a place or is it a person? The snow globe has usually been a place. It's a cathedral you visited. It's a symbol of trip away. The nowhere office, the snow globe, is it a desk? Is it a smartphone? Or is it in fact you? whoever you are, bringing yourself to places in different ways and different times. So I think the shift for me is that the snow globe base has shifted from the place to the person. That is absolutely beautiful. I love that, that it's shifted from the place to the person. And there's so much to think about and to consider in that. But the outcome can be a much more beautiful, healthy prosperous future for all of us. So I really, really like that. Thank you so much, Julia. This has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. And the book is just jam packed full of really interesting ideas and points to think about that I think all of us should be thinking about. Thank you so much for joining me and sharing your insights. It was a real privilege. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you.